You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Tonight, uh, together with Patrick Longian, uh, discussing the subject of uh, Professor Shangi's new book. It's called Progressive Dystopia Abolition, Anti Blackness, and the Schooling in San Francisco. It's published from our friends at Duke University Press. Uh, Professor Shangi is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Principal Faculty in the Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Uh, Professor Kamanjian is an associate professor in the teacher's education department at the University of San Francisco. He has been an educator since uh, 1999. He was awarded the Most Inspirational Teacher Award in the Los Angeles Unified School District by the former mayor Richard Reardon and the school student body. Uh, he's worked with such groups as California People's Education Movement, the Education for uh, Liberation National Network, and San Francisco's Teachers for Social Justice. So the book we're celebrating tonight, uh, I think it's safe to say, it tells it the way it is. Uh, for those of us who have lived in San Francisco all our lives and seen the systematic decimation of the African-American community, a very heartbreaking thing, um, this book says an awful lot, and it comes at a very good time. It is a great honor to have you here with us. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. I guess as the inoculator, is that how you say it? Uh, that um, I'll start things off. I want to just begin by first acknowledging the first people of this land, the Ohlone people, and all the um, historical and social forces that guide our lives. Um, I also want to say that how honored I am to be even in this space, on a microphone, speaking to people. Um, I feel history present in the moment. Um, just even walking in, so so thank you so much for uh, having me a part of, to be a part of this, and then of course, the, um, Dr. Savannah Shange. I just want to say, th- you know, you could have chosen anyone. You you could have done this yourself. You could have chosen anyone to be a part of this night, and um, I'm deeply humbled and honored that you would even consider having any conversation with me, even outside of this space. Um, so so anytime we talk, I'm I'm deeply deeply moved. And man, I'm I get I'm getting goosebumps seeing all the f- familiar faces in the room, people I deeply respect. But um, we're here. <clears throat> Definitely, congratulations on I, I think this is the first of a uh, series of book conversations and talks that you'll have. So congratulations on on progressive dystopia. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, uh, you know uh, what I read is is incredibly uh, sharp analysis. Your Clearly, a, a critical intellectual and uh, one of the um, change agents I have um, deep respect for. So, um, you want to get started? Okay, cool. So, um, in the spirit of um, bookstore readings, um, to start us off, Savannah, uh, if if there was one excerpt that you wanted to read to us tonight. Uh, to frame the evening um, in relation to your book, what would that excerpt be and, and why? Um, so first, Cam, thank you so much for choosing to be here tonight. Uh, I would not be in grad school if it was not for Cam. Um, setting, <laughs> setting a standard and an example of what it can mean to be in the academy in a way that is accountable 
um, and righteous. And so I'm so appreciative of your work writ large. Um, I also, uh, in addition to Native Ohlone folks, I also want to give a shout out to everybody born and raised in San Francisco in this room. Um, where y'all at? Anybody? Okay, yes, yes. I know many people are no longer able to live here, but if it wasn't for um, the young people, the elders, all the community members in this 7 by 7 square, I would have no book, not to mention no professional life to speak of. And really what I know about being an educator has been taught to me by young people in this city, and so for that I'm very grateful. Um, there's seats up here, family, Come if you want to come sit down. Okay. Um, so I want to start with uh, just a little bit of what Frisco as a term means for me and what kind of how my method is oriented around that. And then I'm gonna share a little, a uh, couple excerpts from the second chapter. Sound good? Yeah. All right. A note on Frisco methods. You can stand at the corner of 22nd and Cap in the Mission District while dozens of white tech workers stroll past toting compostable coffee cups in Timbuktu bags and still feel the tug of La Mision, the neighborhood built by the cultural and political labor of generations of Latinx families. Y todavía sobreviviendo in a deferential head nod here, a little spooky's chorus wafting out of the second floor window there. The old San Francisco and the new San Francisco are laid up on top of themselves, an urban palimpsest where social geographies chafe against one another to produce the city. There's seats up here, come through. Just as Frisco is always peeking around the edges of gentrification, this formal ethnographic monograph teeters atop the foundation of socio-political relations that come before it. Frisco here is not a synonym for San Francisco, though their geographic boundaries are coterminous. It's a contested name for this city at the center of my study, used mostly by working class folks, black folks, and people of color in the Bay Area and throughout California. Jarring for some, heartwarming for others, I use Frisco intentionally. Appearing without scare quotes or the italics of impending translation, Frisco dislodges the inherited logics of propriety in the city and is a strategy that privileges the social lexicon of the key participants in this project. So here's a chunk from a long history of seeing, uh, historicizing the progressive dystopia. I pretended to check the time yet again as my phone lit up under the edge of the conference table. Josue's text read, they're giving you a lot to write about, the two middle-class white men not from Frisco, gentrification. <laughs> Stifling a laugh, I looked across the table at him. Josue Magtoto, a Filipino San Francisco native, was leaning in towards Jake, the concerned white parent seated next to him, nodding and feigning interest at his hand-wringing. We sat at the table as members of the school site council, the state-mandated governing body of the Robeson Justice Academy, a small public high school in southeast San Francisco. That year, the council was composed of four parents, two co-principals, um, Josue is the lone teacher representative and myself, technically listed as community member, but granted access due to my twin credentials uh, as my history of a staff, as a staff member and my new role as an Ivy League researcher. At issue this time was the school's security protocols. Because of a vague bomb threat that was phoned into the central district office, the front door to the school had been locked earlier in the week, prompting a wave of complaints from students and staff who had to bang on the steel door in order to get somebody to let them in. Josue ridiculed the situation at the SSC meeting, the school site council. The co-director Aaron recounted that Miss Ivy, a longtime black parent who had come up to the school to register her youngest child, had asked him, what's up with the door being locked? This isn't the Robeson that I remember. What had been mentioned as an aside about a specious terrorist threat became a bone of contention that polarized the members of the SSC. Jake was aghast when he learned that the locked front door was a temporary fluke as opposed to a new protocol. Have you seen what's going on in the news lately? How many times are schools not secured and all the stuff is going on? He demanded, referencing the deadly Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting a few weeks prior. 
After hearing up from staff about the community-oriented, welcoming environment they had tried to cultivate since Robeson's founding, per Jake pursed his lips and pounded his index finger into the table, insisting that it's different now than it was seven years ago. With all respect to you, Josue, it's different. I could barely suppress my side eye at the dismissal veiled in, jails, in Jake's gesture of respect. Robeson was certainly different, but Jake missed that the difference was him. Nothing could be more incongruous than his black-on-black Mercedes-Benz SUV speeding up the pothole hill to Robeson's parking lot, passing a posse of kids on the left waiting at the bus stop, and another on the right chilling on a park bench for the first opportunity to spark a blunt. As Josue put it, Jake was a middle-class white man not from Frisco. He brought with him an imagined American geography, a place where kids are more at risk from trench-coated school shooters than they are from police bullets and handcuffs. What happens when racial geographies collide? If Jake and Miss Ivy were right that Robeson had changed over seven years, how had the city around the school also transformed? How is the Frisco of seven years ago, 70 years ago, even 700 years ago, refracted across one wobbly conference table in the corner of a crowded schoolhouse? Over the course of the rest of that meeting, each of the major political fault lines running through the hills of Southeast San Francisco is revealed. And I use the meeting as a legend to navigate the historical topographies that produce the city and the school. Part of the work that Robeson does is to offer progressive retellings of history, of San Francisco, of the US nation state, of its own institutional legacy. By weaving a narrative of how things got to be the way they are, Robeson teachers and families are able to then make a bid for what needs to happen next. But one kind of problem with this future casting that happens at Robeson, as this meeting illustrates, is the painfully divergent range of origin stories circulating in the social fields of the school, even under the rubric of a unified push for equity and social justice. Laughing, crying emoji aside, Josue's text under the table was more than a passing joke. The focus of the last several SSC meetings had been hammering out a final budget for the following school year by taking into account enrollment changes, impending budget cuts, and upcoming grant cycles. In the latter part of the meeting, we were slated to vote on whether to allocate funds to revive the same social justice internship program that I had developed eight years earlier, Mentoring Youth and Community Action, um, or MICA. Before I left for grad school, Micah was one part of a whole school service learning program in which over 109th and 10th graders spent a few hours a week in direct service positions like tutoring elementary kids, playing board games at a senior home, and then a smaller group of juniors took this Micah seminar that combined a social justice history and theory, um, theory class with a project-based internship at an activist organization. MICA students helped build campaigns for free transit for youth in the city, got trans-inclusive uh, school district policies drafted, and created youth-centered podcasts of Bay Area Black, Black Panther and AIM history. In the fat years of Gates funding and dot-com surplus, MICA was possible to fund because Robeson had more discretionary monies and was able to fund the program with two and a half staff members. Predictable debate ensued of whether it should be a full-time or a half-time position and the fit of current personnel. Throughout all this, both Jake and Garrett remained relatively silent. <clears throat> the proposal was put to a vote. It passed with the only two dissenters being Jake and Garrett. Explaining his nay vote, Garrett argued, I think we should spend the money on increased security instead of having to create the community aspect of it. Putting down the finger scare quotes he used for community, he waved off the central tenants of the school with a manicured hand. I do know that's what the mission is, but my personal stance is we've got to correct the internal attitudes before we can put ourselves outside. So we need to fix that. What's broken inside before we go outside? In this frame, what's broken inside is the students themselves, unruly in their blackness and brownness, in need of corrective rather than collective action. 
Garrett's framework falls in line with the latest generation of deficit-oriented theories of urban schools in crisis, where students and families are to blame for the achievement gap, re-theorized by Gloria Ladson Billings as an education debt owed to communities of color. In the Robeson School Site Council, and more broadly as a symptom of the resettlement of urban spaces by white elites, gentros insinuate themselves into the first-person plural as justification for a takeover of community resources. Garrett positions himself as we, based on just a couple months of experience as either a San Francisco resident or a Robeson parent, in a political move that strips history and power away from the notion of us. In so doing, he creates a false equivalence between himself and Jose and Deirdre on the one hand, who are raised in the city, and with Aaron on the other, who has spent the last two decades working with Frisco youth. Though the MICA proposal passed, Garrett's eagerness to dismiss the mission of Robeson Justice Academy in a bid for ramping up surveillance points to a fault line creeping along the school's foundation, one that is constitutive of not only the carceral progressive paradox, but to the late liberal democracy of which it is a part. As a forum, progressivism prizes democratic, horizontal decision-making that levels the playing field in such a way that someone like Garrett could indeed block a proposal based on his parental priorities. Community organizing in the tradition of Saul Alinsky, shout out, um, practiced by both a young Barack Obama and by the very faith-based organization that opened, uh, helped to found Robeson, relies on this sense of horizontal citizen voice, and it can be so effective at building successful campaigns. At the same time, this tradition of populist inclusion has been critiqued as privileging the form of democracy over its content in such a way that entrenched inequities of race and gender may not be sufficiently addressed by simply bringing everyone to the same table. The community aspect that Garrett was so ready to eliminate at Robeson was the impetus for the institution's founding and one of the few precious autonomies granted by its inclusion in the district's small school by design policy. At best, he misrecognized the substance of the school for fluff. At worst, he strategically leveraged his relative wealth and whiteness to flip and undervalue institutions for his own benefit, playing Monopoly with one of the last black-serving high schools in this city. The close of the meeting skewed towards the latter. Tina, one of the principals, facilitated a group checkout in which he asked each board member to reflect on what had been accomplished in the meeting. Roseanne, a Chinese-American parent whose autistic child attended a special day program, was really glad that funds for special education students to attend field trips had been prioritized. Deirdre, a black mother whose family at this point had been pushed all the way to Vallejo, reiterated the need to involve the broader community of parents in the budgetary process. When it was Garrett's turn, he said, to be quite honest, this budget has been very, this process has been very eye-opening to me, and to be quite honest, quite scary. I couldn't imagine sitting in an office meeting like this. I would be ripped to shreds. Turning to Tina, he smiled too broad and demurred, no disrespect to you, of course. Jake amplified Garrett's corporate logic. I agree with you. In the business world, if I had come back with a budget like this, I would have been ripped to shreds. I would have been fired. He stood up before the meeting was adjourned and cheerfully announced, I've got to get my children. Jake left, and though the meeting ambled on for a few more minutes, his abrupt departure made his comments feel like an ultimatum dangling over their proceedings. Jake and Garrett used their positions on the bottom rungs of San Francisco's elite financial class to intimidate Robeson's leadership. I would have been ripped to shreds. I would have been fired. Though they lost the vote that evening, their closing comments were a reminder of all that was at stake in these meetings. Jake's insinuated threat of firing Tina wasn't empty. Outside the superintendent, the school site council is the only body that has the power to request a principal reassignment. Intended as a community-based strategy of uh, checks and balances, 
Jake and Garrett threatened a hostile takeover of the school site council, transforming this governing body into another battleground of racial and economic dispossession in San Francisco. The symbolism of Jake and Garrett joining the SSE was not lost on Josue. The neighborhood he grew up in, Bernal Heights, was hit in the 1980s by the first waves of gentrification, and the sidewalk leading to his mama's house is now clogged with four-figure baby strollers and organic wine bars. As he mused eloquently a few days later after uh, in our interview, those two, even though they could be the greatest guys on earth, if you don't have that consciousness and you have two middle, upper middle class white men, queer or not, coming into your school, it represents a lot for the neighborhood. For me, born and raised in the city, seeing a community organization, them coming in and trying to take shit. For Josue, that consciousness is the kind of political analysis central to his own family and neighborhood upbringing. The son of a Filipino labor organizer, Josue was the only certified teacher at Robeson who was not only born and raised in Frisco, but came through the poor, dysfunctional neighborhood schools of the Southeast, rather than the elite West Side schools that funneled other Frisco natives on staff into the University of California system. He had been an activist since his teen years, mobilizing against police brutality, evictions, and budget cuts as he worked his way on and off through community college. When Josue ruminated on his memories of Bernal Heights in the 80s and sitting in that SSC meeting seeing Jake and Garrett trying to take shit, he stopped at one point to breathe and gather himself. At that moment, the audio recording of the interview swells with the low hiss of feedback and people chatting in the background of the park until Josue sighs audibly. It's just a long history of seeing. Oh, it's very clear that your um, ethnography skills and your qualitative writing is brilliant. And, you know, I think for me, um, it's clear what. Um, <coughs> What you're lifting up from that excerpt, but um, just for in, in you know in your outside of writing words, can you tell us why you chose that uh, excerpt to frame the conversation? Um, I think for me, it's really about uh, centering the stories of people who are here um, and who are still here in this city. I think the other piece is for a book that's about blackness and black people. Mm -hmm. um, it's also really clear to me all the ways in which blackness is being both. So we know a lot about how blackness is harmed and put in peril, right, by lots of different people, many of whom are not black. We don't know about the ways in which blackness is protected mm -hmm. and supported by non-black people. And I wanted to list, lift up this, this, this uh, person who becomes a character in the book, Josue, because he's also one of the most consistent champions for black people in this text, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so just getting a sense of what is the overall practice what does the grounding mm -hmm. um, for accompliceship look like? Mm -hmm. For someone, I mean, the, you could have a meeting about swimming lessons, same question. How, what does this have to do with the black students? How are being responsible to black students? And so I lift up his story just as a model of one of many ways that um, people in this city have tried to stand up and with one another. Okay, thank you so much. And so I have a whole bunch of questions, but I'm just gonna ask like two, and then I wanna open up and you know give everyone here an opportunity to ask questions. and. You know, if there's gaps for me to um, ask others, then I will. But I want to sort of uh, maybe backtrack a little. Just, we didn't even check in about any kind of questions we were going to ask. So hope, hope it's okay. All right, cool. No disrespect if you feel that way. But uh, can you just tell us uh, what, you, what inspired you to, to do this research, to write the book, and then what inspired the title, Progressive Dystopia, which you break down in Chapter 2? Um, so I did not know what grad school was. 
<laughs> and I thought that I was going to leave uh, my job and go get some skills from graduate school to learn how to make schools better. They don't really teach that in graduate school. Sorry. <laughs> Real talk. Um, but what I did learn was um, I got a lot more space to take a step back from things that had become very normalized for me, right? And kind of just doing the best we can, doing the best we can, which was the very best we could do. But by taking a step back and getting some personal space and then also reading more and learning more theory, I realized what becomes so clear in our lives all the time that sometimes the best you can do is not good enough, mm. right? Um, and so I was trying to figure out how to come back um, and honor that best and also honor the, the gap between what I call the best case scenario, mm -hmm. which is Robeson. So right now, if you're a black parent talking to me, I said, this is probably a school you send your kids to. It's the best case scenario for being in San Francisco. But the gap between the best case scenario and the current um, city and country mm -hmm. we live in is far from what it's going to take right. for black people to be able to survive in this place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the gap I try mm -hmm. to write into. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, progressive dystopia uh, in part was really sparked by my own reflections on my investments in progressivism and in being a progressive, mm -hmm. right? Um, and this kind of sense of, oh, they're progressive. That means they're my people. And I realized, oh, right. the more I really dug into this data, I realized somebody can be a complete true blue 3,000% progressive and still be doing nothing to protect black children and elders from impending death, mm -hmm. right? I, progressives call the police all the time. Right, and so that's part of what it was about for me is that we have to stop thinking about a label as being, we, we invest so much more emotional capacity in progressivism than it can stand. It's an incredible tool. It has an incredible history that has always been, look at, look at the 1930s, look at the 1920s, suffused with white supremacy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So just to have a more critical sense of who and what are we um, setting as our standard mm -hmm. and how can we grow past it. And so for me, dystopia is about um, really understanding San Francisco to be the end of a black world, mm -hmm. right? In the sense of we're all dealing with the apocalypse coming, like literally the world is melting, right? So there's like a general sense of the world as we know it coming to an end. And that's all apocalypse is. Apocalypse is only the end of that world as you know it. Mm -hmm. There is no absolute apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And so I think what uh, the young people and the elders in San Francisco teach us is that even after the end of a black world, mm -hmm. blackness still thrives and finds ways to make a sense of self after the end of the world. So like Octavia Butler is one of the um, the guides I really use in building this this work is she helps us thinking about, okay, okay, the world is over. Now what you gonna do, mm -hmm. right? And I think there's some answers here in this city that I try to amplify um, and then also answers that we're all creating every day. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate how you also just sort of um, point out that paradox by asking the question, who wins when, who, who loses when we win? Mm -hmm. uh, important, really, uh, really important aspect of the book that I appreciated. But um, uh, another question, or my last question, at least for now, that I wanted to ask, and I hope I'm not out of line, but in the um, acknowledgments, you reveal that your mother passed away before the book uh, went to press. Mm -hmm. um, just because I want to um, highlight um, how our personal lives are always present in our professional uh, can you share with us what you learned from your mother, also a renowned uh, writer, um, black feminist and poet, mm -hmm. um, what you learned from her about being black, about being, um, about black girl truths, about being a reader and writer, and about being a mother? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I remember being in this room with my mother, right? Um, and so I think 
the most important thing that in terms of particularly in terms of this project um, that my mother taught me is to love black people. And that's a full sentence. There's not a qualifier. Um, and the most important thing about being black is to love black people. And that's, I think, the hardest thing for us to do. Um, we love black excellence. We love black girl magic. We love black boy joy. But do we love black people who are not hashtags, who aren't cute, who don't have their highlights together, whose bundles are not thick? You know what I'm saying? Like, do, um, listen, listen. It's, liter it's, it's a literacy. Get into it. Um, and so I think what she really taught me um, is the magnificence of blackness um, in a very daily way. And so I think that's the piece that has been most important for me and that you can um, make a life out of words, you know? Love it, love it, love it. And Tosake Shange, I believe, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I messed that up. You know, I'm a, you know if I messed that up, it's because we didn't check in. Okay, so, so um, cool. Um, I don't know how long we going to. I don't know. Yeah, then so Peter, where are you at? Oh, okay. Well, let's. Cool. I, I, I just wanted to get a sense, but um, at this point, if you don't mind, um, I'd like to just open it up, see if anyone has a question, uh, maybe some co a comment that that can lead to a response, or um, I don't want it to just be um, held. Uh, up, uh, with me at least so and um, I also encourage you if you have questions for Cam no please yes. no questions for ask Cam questions <laughs> please no um, yes please um, I wanted to ask about the, um, the Victor Arnestock murals at Washington High School George Washington High School and all that uh, controversy and around them <coughs> everybody, does everybody know what uh, you're talking about I did some notes can, can you give a little background okay um, in the 1930s, uh, Russian immigre communist artist Viktor Arnatov um, was commissioned by the WPA during the Depression to do murals. He did some up at Coit Tower, but the um, murals in Washington um, High School out in the avenues, the Richmond District, um, highlight uh, history. He portrayed African-American slaves, but most controversially, he portrayed a dead Indian lying on his face with um, black and white uh, images of frontiersmen standing on the body. All the other um, aspects of the murals are um, in color. So um, he was, well, a progressive, but you know, he was trying to portray the true ugliness of uh, American history. But over the years, um, many students and parents felt that a 14 and a 15 year old might not be good to come in, every, even though they understood the intent of Arnatov's murals. And he was a personal friend of my family's. Um, I personally would never want one drop of paint or, you know, to touch these murals. But I went to a school board meeting and, and, I, and uh, I'm for a compromise that if during the school year, a curtain or a panel or something can be over these, um, you know, um, offensive images, the two, um, that's fine. And I happen to personally know five of major opponents to even covering the murals, um, all older white men. And I came across a quote by James Baldwin about the rage of the disesteemed. I'll give it to you because it's just so right on. Yeah, so the question is, here, let me give this to you. 
No, I think I think you're I'm asking about like what yeah, kind of the steps are. Most mm -hmm. two things. I haven't been to wash in a long time. Um, anybody went to wash in here? Okay, in the building. Oh, you, you're a teacher at wash. Okay, so I haven't been I haven't been to wash in a long time, so I can't call the mural up in my mind. I'm hearing two different things. One is the piece around um, a depiction. So there's three actually. One is about the intention of the artist and how it shows up here. And I think particularly at this moment we're pretty 3,000% on impact over intent. And so you can describe someone's intentions while addressing the impact. So I think that's one piece. Um, the second piece is San Francisco just actually got um, the green light on a brand new native cultural center, right? Mm -hmm. And that just happened. Um, and so uh, San Francisco is a native hub, right? There's not just folks who are Ohlone who live here and have been living here, mm -hmm. but folks from all nations all around the occupied uh, occupied U.S. and Canada, not to mention indigenous folks from Central America and Mexico, who, um, or what is now called Mexico, who are living in this city. And really, to me, the decision about how to depict colonization is one that needs to be held centrally by people who are indigenous to this city in communication with folks who are indigenous who are moving through this city. So I'm going to go ahead and say that is who I think, in terms of actions, to be answering this question. Um, the third piece is kind of around uh, what it means to be 14 and 15 in confronting death. And I think particularly um, for black, Chicano, Central American, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Hmong youth in this city, at 14 and 15, they've seen bullet holes per firsthand, right? They've seen, they've been to, to funerals, they've worn RIP placards. And so I think it is more important to protect children from violence than it is to protect them from depictions of violence. So that's the other side. I think there's three different pieces. Um, and so I think that in the rush to protect them from this image, we want to think about how are we rushing to protect them um, from the systems that take their peers away. Awesome. Please. Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, for having me present. I'm John Collins. Well, I just found out about it like late two hours ago. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, you know, I think this is really a very important uh, subject coming up. And as I was walking up the stairs, I was just surprised to hear you say Vernal Heights. Say where? Because I was uh, born and raised mm -hmm. in Vernal Heights. Vernal Heights in the building? Anybody else repping Vernal Heights? Heights? Where y'all at? Anybody Anybody here? Here? Hey, in the building. Right there. <laughs> By going to Paul Revere, you have the revolutionary spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody know? I'm not going to go to what Paul Revere did, but he's definitely revolutionary. Right, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, this is a really a dear subject. Education. I haven't read your book, but it sounds like it's mostly about education, because my family's been in education about maybe like ooh, two centuries. Okay. Mm -hmm. So first with the University of Virginia, mm -hmm. uh, reigning NAAC champions. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so if you go there, you'll see a Tom Farrell Hall, and that was built by Tom Farrell, black and white. Uh, but the Tom Farrell that built it, that was black, did not go there. Mm. Spawned a Booker T. Washington T is four. So, so we've really been in education for really quite some time. So this is something that really is dear to my heart and ancestry. So as your book comes out, and I'm looking at some of the other media mm -hmm. about San Francisco, mm -hmm. like let's just go back a bit. Uh, melancholy for Mason for Melancholy, yeah, yeah. Barry Jenkins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of addictive what's going on here, mm -hmm. along with the baby newspaper, which yeah, yeah, I like to know too. 
but we can't do anything to stop it. Mm -hmm. And then we have, of course, the last black man in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and, and to really uh, extent Panther. Is that, mm -hmm. It's in the Oakland with our cousins. Mm -hmm. you know? So just a little bit on like mm -hmm. how media is portraying black people and what you think mm -hmm. that, you know, the perception that goes around, especially people who don't really deal with a lot of black people, there's that perception mm -hmm. right, through those and other media. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm gonna be quiet now. Mm. I think that's enough. Here. No, yeah, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. First of all, thank you for bringing that history into the room, sir. I really appreciate yeah. that that two centuries you're bringing in with you. Um, no, I'm serious. Like, cause you know we think it's, it's everything so present, 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 1965 and later, but it goes deeper than that. So I appreciate that. Um, so I would add to that. So I, so I'll answer two questions. I think for me, depicting San Francisco straight out of Hunter's Point, Kevin Epps is like nine four one two four in the building. And so um, Straight Honor's Point is really, uh, I think, the filmic introduction of a certain kind of blackness um, into a larger public. And I also feel like um, artists like uh, San Quinn, you know what I'm saying? There's, like art, there's, there's, there's hip hop artists who have either lived in um, San Francisco or represented Rap and Forte. I mean, I feel like, you know, there is a body of work that emanates from um, black and what I would call black-end San Francisco. So there's folks who are Polynesian, there's folks who are um, Filipino who roll with black folks, there's folks who are Latinx, uh, Latinx by blood, but their first, first language is black English, right? And so there's folks who are in this city who are in deep relationship with blackness who aren't just black, right? So that whole crew of people, I think, are part of producing uh, alternate um, media production and media image of blackness that kind of culminates in a medicine for melancholy, which is, you know, very Jenkins and from the city. Um, but it's a beautiful moment, right? And then you have even, um, I would actually say in a very different way, this sounds like it's not answering your question, but what is that uh, always be my maybe? That was that's always my maybe. Um, lovely rom com, yeah. first rom, first real Chinese American or even Asian American like real love story. And in a way, that film is actually about race in San Francisco too, mm -hmm. because these two, very, you know, it's a lovely film. The two Chinese American love interests connect through hip hop, mm -hmm. right? It's actually through a rap band. So blackness continues to be the space and shape of intimacy even in the Asian mm -hmm. city. Um, and that's also part of the story of blackness in San Francisco that it supports so much, even when black people are gone. We got a whole jazz district with no black people in it, right? And so I think part of um, what happens in San Francisco is we only hear about black people leaving. So I wanted to write black, something about the 3.9% who are still left. And so folks like Ranisha, child, what's her last name? Um, in the 3.3%, last 3% coalition, um, there's folks who are still doing that work and representing politically, and this is just a way to add to their um, ongoing struggle. I'm gonna ask a, a question, um, and then we'll take others, but the um, progressive dystopia essentially is this sort of um, narrative approach, approach to sort of um, lift up like San Francisco as the apocalypse for black folks, and then this sort of focal school site as um, sort of an extension that is sort of narrated as a win, but you know who loses in that context. Mm -hmm. And then you 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 um, lift up the um, stories of um, um, young black folks who um, are here despite the odds. So I'm I'm wondering um, if you could just um, share with us what the young folks in progressive dystopia um, teach us about willful defiance mm -hmm. and about surviving in this apocalypse. Mm -hmm. 
um, so Willful Defiance, and then by here, Ben suspended for Willful Defiance. <laughs> so some of you may know, um, just recently, actually, uh, Willful Defiance is no longer um, one of the things in the California Education Code that it is legal to suspend people for. But for years and years, and LA took LA, uh, LA actually led the charge and was one of the first places that, that disallowed it. So, you know, you can be suspended in California for bringing a knife to school, for selling drugs, for laying hands upon a person, all these other kinds of things, which are very kind of like have cognates in the criminal code. And then there's willful defiance of a valid authority, right? right. And so this was the chunk, if you look at, so folks, and this is um, Coleman Advocates um, in the Excelsior did a lot of work, shout out Coleman Advocates, of, of, of documenting case for case. And there, you know, there are other groups throughout like CFJ and stuff, um, how the willful defiance uh, rule was being used dis to disproportionately target not only black children, but black girls in particular. So lots of black kids getting suspended, and lots of black boys getting suspended for weapons stuff and you know all this kind of stuff, but the, by far the largest chunk of black girls were getting suspended for willful defiance of a valid authority, right? And so part of what I looked at was, okay, in this school setting, who is getting suspended? Right in the school that has the highest uh, rate of suspensions for black students in the city, right? And although a lot of boys are being suspended, the people with the highest number of referrals and suspensions were black girls across the board, right? And if you looked at why, it was for willful defiance. This is progressives, right? We challenge authority, we're democratic, right? And so really what I learned was the fundamental challenge to authority is not necessarily going to happen out in a protest or by signing up for like being a you know a Bernie burner. It's in I right now <coughs> challenge your valid authority. And I think a lot of our models, particularly for racialized um, stories of survival and stories of excellence, are either radical inclusion, like I was the top of my class, I became class president, you know, I I got this, you know, I I was able to go and like master the system, or radical departure. Like I quit, I started my own thing, we left, we're over here. And I think what willful defiance is, is oh, I'm gonna be here on my own terms, right? And so I think what I saw black girls in particular do in this space is literally as they were being suspended for willful defiance, but also they give us a way of engaging with progressivism that doesn't cede space, right? Literally, like I'm gonna come to school and I'm gonna be in the hallway for hours player what are you going to do about it i came to school right and that is like the bane of an educator's existence and on the one hand we get paid and we have a job to do and we have an idea of what we think going to class and graduating is going to do for a young person and we are betting that it will do something to protect them even a little bit from this place that is trying to rip any shred of dignity from their lives right that's why we're at that's why we're teaching and then can we listen to somebody who's like mm -hmm. i'm good and like, what is there there? What is there there? Awesome. Thank you. Um, any any responses, questions? Please. Also, I mean. Uh, my name is Julio. I've been at Jim Jordan for a while. Uh, and it's Edith. She's actually introduced me to job, and I met some people there. So questions, Savannah. What happens when a lot of the young black girls, boys, are being suspended by black administrators. Oh. Talk about it. Oh. I would like for you to say that again. This is the thing about anti-blackness that people really misunderstand. 
and about racism in general. They think it has something to do with a person being racist. Oh no, friend, anti-blackness has nothing to do with, anti-blackness is not about the beginning, the subject of a sentence, it's about the object of a sentence. So getting shot by the cops, by a black cop, well that's not racist, no, that's still racist, it's anti-black because it impacts black people. So I think that it's really difficult for folks to understand that no one is immune to anti-blackness, right? We've all grown up soaked in it, it's what Christina Sharp calls the weather, right? And sometimes, particularly for black folks like myself who have jumped through every little hoop, like recontorted our entire selves to get these little pieces of paper that weigh next to nothing, it can be, you know, it can be very, very um, difficult to share an idea of what blackness means, right? And so I think it can feel like a very personal threat when somebody says, that's not my kind of black, right, in general. And so I think so A, anti-blackness is, is endemic to the system and everybody who's in it, right? And so it's not a cop uniform. I mean, it's not the same. And the same way that when you put on a police uniform, you are blue before you're black, when you step into being a state agent, right, unless you're working incredibly hard and straight up really risking your job to just not do your job description, doing your job description as an agent of the state is anti-black, Right? I mean, so is drinking coffee, so is eating chocolate. And so it's not like you can be immune from anti-blackness, but I think that it's important to know when you are saying, you know what, I'm gonna go ahead and give you this passing grade, right? To know when you're saying, you know what, we're gonna call your uncle and your auntie and your play cousin right now because we're not calling the cops, right? Or what is it that you're gonna do? And that might mean giving up on finishing that grant. It might cost you $200,000 to do that because you're not gonna finish this grant. And you go sit with this kid. Is it worth it? Some people say, no, it's not worth it. And I need, for me, if you're saying, no, I'm going to go do this $200,000 grant, you better stand with that and not blame the child. You'll make your choice. What has been most frustrating for me is people then going all backwards and around the way to be like, well, they just did such a bad, they just really shouldn't. You made a choice. You know what I'm saying? So I think that is what your question brings up. So also Duke are a teacher, but all of these were alumni because I thought all the teachers are in the shout building. Shout out, shout out, shout out to one in the building. Um, so it's funny that you bring up like the band of teachers' existence being like girls in the hallway. They're gonna go to school at their terms. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Mm-hmm. You don't tell me how to live my life. I came to class, you, you lucky I even showed up today. You are. Right. You are. You are. So with that being said, as much as we tried to cover and protect them, mm-hmm. And they're choosing to not be under our protection. Right. Mm-hmm. What then? Because we are now setting ourselves up and themselves up to be at this vulnerable state when they graduate. Now they are adults and now they are not ready to like take on the world as they are now because they're still in this immature status where they're like, oh, I'm going to do what I want to do right. type-ish and not learning that, hey, sometimes you can't do what you want to do. And, and where in the educational process is that learned? Right. And then... If it is not learned, how how can we, you know? I mean, like it's I don't I'm, I'm I'm it's wishful thinking to like go back in time and wish you could like get those students to save them, but it's like what will we do then? What is like the next step after that? Okay, there's two. Uh, oh, this is this is it. This is the question. I mean, there's a couple of things. I think I'm gonna start at the end. You're not gonna save nobody, right? And even if you do, it's temporary. That's that's writ large in general, not about this situation. Um, and I think. The more above ground piece of that is really about saving has to do with the risk. 
So the risk is present. You that's setting up. You're not setting somebody up by something happening in eleventh grade, right? It's been set up for hundreds of years. Which is not an alibi. It's just to say, okay, what am I doing in this moment? Am I really putting the force of my three hours the rest of my day against five hundred years? Is that a sense of self grandeur, right? Or it, am I putting myself alongside this person and being like, look, what are you really trying? Like, where do you see yourself in nineteen? for real and like how can how is what you're doing today part of that because they might have a very serious vision for themselves that is not aligned with necessarily graduating or graduating on time right they also may have seen people graduate all kinds of on time go to city go to go to sf state and be in a situation that they don't want to be in right and so i feel like there's always some kind of wisdom operating and it might be wisdom that is like deeply embedded in trauma deeply embedded in scarcity mentality, right? Mm. And it might be like, I literally cannot do, and like in the sense of I'm lucky to be here, you're lucky I'm here today. Sometimes that means like trauma can work in such a way that like I can get to this building, I cannot be in this room with other people, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not gonna fit in a four year graduation timeline, mm -hmm. realistically, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's about a relationship building, which sounds like you're obviously already doing, mm -hmm. right? And so some of my strongest relationships with students are students who did not graduate. Right, who I'm, you know, we're reaching out to each other now. Hey, I'm finally ready to finish up my GED. Like I'm thinking about Skyline, I'm thinking about City, and it's a long term, right? And so it's like, are we connecting as Black women? And me having your back, can we step for a second out of the teacher role to be like, what do you need right now, right? Outside of what do I need you to do right now, you know? And I think that every, so I think that there is sometimes space to make that move and to just know that the door doesn't shut when she's not on that stage graduating. And that's not, the door doesn't shut on her right. dreams, the door doesn't shut on your work, right. right? And so that to me is a little bit of like how not just schools but nonprofit life can co-opt our freedom dreams. Because your wish for her is not for her to graduate fucking high school, right? That's not your wish, you know what I'm saying? And so like how does that get translated? And so if you're communicating to her that your wish of her to graduate high school, she's like, I don't give a shit. If you communicate to her, I only care about that because something else, then you might be able to have a real conversation about the something else. Let's go one, two, three. But that's, that's the thing though, how are you gonna encourage a community with such a deeply rooted historical trauma mm -hmm. to trust the system, even educational system, when it's so unfair? Mm -hmm. How do we focus on a solution? How do we focus on like fixing the problem within the system, within our educational system as a student, as a teacher, to empower each other as an educational community. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that your first question is very real. You asked, how do you encourage someone to trust in a system that's so flawed? Yeah. I think they're not trusting is what you need to listen to, right? And so you're not going to encourage, especially in any kind of short frame, you're not going to encourage it. You shouldn't encourage people to trust a system that is designed for their demise, yeah. right? So the question is, how do you build something worth trusting? Right, and that might take 40 years. What are we gonna do in the meantime? Right, so in the meantime, you might be like, okay, as we build something worth trusting, go and talk to community members about what the roots of the distrust are and start building in that direction. And in the meantime, might be a couple generations. Okay, in the meantime, is it supporting homeschool cooperatives? In the meantime, is it train, um, creating teacher training programs so that folks who graduated from high school can go back and teach them and make them worth something? Right, so what are the different many avenues of creating something worth trusting along the way. I don't think that the goal can be to help people conform to what we have now, because A, it's, it's ill-fated, and B, it's, it's uh, 
collusion with a system oriented towards black death. So that's a mm. non-starter. Mm. 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 So my question is, I appreciate how your book is presenting like the contradictions of the school that's, that's hella progressive on paper, yada yada, and then you're speaking about how there's contradictions. And I appreciate what you just named in regards to like, yo, some of my some of my strongest relationships were with people who didn't graduate. And that's, that's, that's what I did when I was at that school. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, despite the contradictions, did you see institutional things cracking off at this school mm -hmm. that maybe, I don't know what words to use, that surprised you, mm -hmm. knowing all that you know, can you reflect back and be like, that was some dope stuff that we did. It didn't surprise me because I knew it was dope. And so, like, I came back, like, I I was rooted in dopeness. So that was, I was, like, literally, my goal, my research design was let me find the absolute best fucking school that I know of in the country and use that as a place to start. Because we know about the trash schools. You could read, it's about, you know what I'm saying, this room filled twice of these, like, military prisons that they've transformed into the high schools. And so, like, to me, it was about not so much, it's like, um, more like on the iron sharpens iron. Right, like let's start with our absolute best shot, and so I think to me the dopeness was built in. So I was not surprised because I knew that there was all kinds of ill, like community-based uh, education happening, just real truth about like what happens in, this, in the United States, and the curricular content in this school is by far, like far and above, set the standard for the the ethnic studies that's required now. I mean, just like left, right, up and down, particularly what happens in the classroom. Um, is a, literally a national model. People fly from other countries. People fly from other countries. Come look what happened in the school, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, to me, though, this is not a book about teaching and learning. If I was writing a book about teaching and learning, it'd be a very different book, right? And so, my question was like, okay, if we think of schools not just as places where teaching and learning happen, right, but actually think of them as places as, as state spaces where everything—bathrooms, phone calls, offices—all of that is actually a funded structure of a continuing American empire, then what's going on? Because there's a lot of people, and you know a lot of them, who know a lot about teaching and learning more than I do, who could like get more deep into that piece, but that wasn't what I was necessarily looking at. Mm -hmm. I will say in terms of, I think another part of this question is kind of like a highlight kind of part of this. One of the things that I saw was, um, I write a whole chapter about the Spanish classroom. And so Spanish, this is a very racially integrated school with no white people to speak of, right? But, you know, black, brown, hella different Asian communities, like, you know, very integrated in that sense. Um, Spanish classes are, as you might imagine, racially segregated, right? Because most Latinx students are in the native speakers class, really regardless of their, <laughs> their Spanish levels, right? <laughs> so, but they're in this native speakers class, which means all the beginning Spanish classes are... Uh, you know, a couple Chinese American kids, a couple Polynesian kids, and black kids, right? And so there is a Spanish teacher that I write about who's born and raised in the city, Chicana artist who's learning how to teach Spanish and learning, you know, really recreated the Spanish curriculum to be about Afro Latinidad, right? It really teaches about blackness, taught about the roots of um, slavery, like really kind of created a curriculum that used that opportunity to teach against anti-blackness in all these different small ways, right? And so she was feeling like a struggle as a first year teaching. I was like, this is the bomb, this is amazing. And students in that class, A, they had incredible Spanish gains. So they were really learning a lot of Spanish. And they were talking a lot of shit on her in Spanish in class, right? So students were pushing up against her attempts to be anti-racist, right? Which I think were uh, uh, really 
uh, successful attempts and kind of pushing past it, but in their pushing past, they're pushing past it in Spanish, right? And so you see this, this connection between a bunch of folks who are invested in the city and what it looks like when black and brown folks who are born and raised in San Francisco and can have these conversations and kids are coming out with the Spanish skills they came in from, she's coming out with a sense of like, okay, how could I shift this, right? And that looked very different from people who were coming in with a much more structured way of this is how it should be. And if my pedagogy is not working, it's your fault for not conforming to it, right? So I think that was in terms of like a highlight in terms of like this struggle at its best was that struggle that I saw in this very beginning uh, teacher's classroom. Mm -hmm. Please. touching on is the way that anti-blackness can show up as this like punitive exclusionary um, way that we operate uh, in the name of safety in the name mm -hmm. of like order um, and then but there's this other way that it, it shows up in progressive or so-called progressive spaces which is like um, a, pervis a permissiveness a low expectations mm -hmm. uh, we see you in the hallway every day we know you need something, right. you're not going to class, and we're just going to let you roll like that every day for right. six months or a right. year. And that is another... Right. And then blame you when you won't right. finish. Right. right. And so I wonder, uh, you know, so what, uh, are there instances in the book where you, you know, uh, bump up against that and, like, how that shows up? Because I think, like, people do it in the name mm -hmm. of, like, I'm progressive. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, not be, you know, punitive because this and like not that I'm saying we should be punitive but right. we have to we have to figure out how to give students what they need and like just uh, allowing um, for folks to be in the building and not and, mm -hmm. and not be in classrooms and all that stuff it just is another way that we perpetuate you know students not having mm -hmm. the things that they need right I mean I think there's two parts of it I think one it doesn't really show up in the book because I think in this particular iteration of this school that there was a more of a like bifurcation between like straight up law and order people like that 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 didn't pop it just didn't pop up that much in the data but I know the dynamic you're talking about and I think there's two parts of it one is part of it has to do with us not having the resources right because part of what students need is not to be in school right because in order to learn you cannot learn like you can force someone to sit with like sit with trauma and sit with like all this other stuff and just sit in a room but actually engage in the learning process often you need to take that stuff out of the way but we don't have real i mean we could listen we have some amazing uh, <laughs> therapists in schools but we don't really have the structure like in you know, those places like i'm thinking about el puente in brooklyn right there's a community center and a high school like places that actually are places you can be and not be in a classroom a part of it is structural we don't have places for them to be in the school building that are not classrooms they're coming to school because they want to be where the fuck else they could be so they are getting something that they need they're getting they're not no one who is 16 years old comes to school unless they want to <laughs> like that's an a that that's it's a, it's a choice and so i think part of it is seeing that they are choosing to come and they're getting some need met by being in the building right mm -hmm. and so i think that's part of it and then recognizing like oh wow this community needs like actual space you know what i'm saying some kind of space to be able to do something other than rest between classes. And that's like a real structural concern about mandatory schooling, a seven hour school day, a four year high school um, structure, like all of that. Like we even think about college as a six year process and that's normalized, like graduation rates, 
um, the whole thing. And so I think part of it has to do with really, and there's some schools, and I think some people in this classroom, in this uh, room might know more about examples of places that have a less structured path to graduation. So part of it might be like straight up more time is needed. And I know that that's not like something that can happen on Monday, but I think part of it is like, there is something that can go between the gap between what this person needs and what we can offer that does have to do about like really changing the structure. I think the other piece though is about what I'm hearing you talk about is fear of black people, right? And so translating is I'm letting them do something and I'm afraid to be in relationship to blackness. And the only way they know how to be in relationship is to confront. So I'm gonna choose not to confront or I'm gonna choose to confront. There's a whole range of ethical, ethical relationality that's not about confronting. And it also means if teachers have somewhere to be every four minutes, they can't stop and talk to a student for 40 minutes, which is what it would take to really be like, hey, what's up? How are you doing? Tell me about your outfit. Tell me about what's going on. What are you listening to? What are you singing so loud in the hallway? I want to know that song. Like an hour later, you might get somewhere and really be on a walk to class with someone, right? But it takes that moment of someone being seen and respected. And if we don't have people in the building who A, have some kind of cultural resonance and respect, and B, are not super scheduled, we're not ever going to be able to really give those students an opportunity to engage the institution with dignity. Right, and so I think that's, I don't know if that answers. Mm -hmm. Gosh, um, this, this is just quickly, just an observation, because I'm really looking forward to reading the book, because everything that you brought up so far, I'm with the NAACP, and it, not one, but every, every one of the meetings that I've been to over the last five years, there's an issue that at least one or two people come in about education. Mm -hmm. Their child being this, yes. school is being this, the counselor is doing this, uh, and they've come up with remedy. Mm -hmm. They've come up with programs to address, okay. especially what you just said, like the the, 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 the girl that doesn't want to be there, is probably smarter than all the kids there. Talk about you know, it. she's thinking some shit, it's like, this is not my, so they, they come up with programs to address every mm -hmm. single one of these, and you know what, the programs work. Okay. They work for a couple of years, and then what happens? They get defunded. Wait, say that again. They get defunded. They get defunded. I'm like, well, okay. Well, that, and, and I would, I would add. Well, I'm the, the, just money to just fund but you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to because they're the responsibility of the state. You already fund them. You already put all of your money and resources into the state of California, right? And so I guess to me the other piece, though, is they partly they get defunded. The other part of it is that the black and brown people who are peopling those programs get sick of being mistreated and underpaid. And they leave. Right. But you know what I'm saying? But people, you're talking about, so those kinds of folks, the kind of person that I'm talking about that would be able to not be a teacher is going to be the lowest paid person uh, person in the building, might have a decent hourly wage, they're not going to have benefits, they're not going to have um, an ongoing status, right? They're going to be on a contract, they might even get a 1099 and owe a shit ton of taxes the next year. Yep. And so if we don't, literally, we don't think with our labor minds, right, and employ people at the teacher rate, right, you're, talking, you're coming with a lifetime of experience. Employ people at the rate that they would be if they had jumped through those hoops. Employ people that you know as a living wage. Employ people on the teacher scale, and then you might have some real um, you know, investment in the city. They also might have people from San Francisco who would be able to actually find a way to live, at least in decent commuting distance, mm -hmm. right? Okay, I, I want to ask just before we leave, just for clarity, uh, without assuming that we even know what these terms are, I have like three layered questions. What is the difference between white supremacy and anti-black racism? One, and then two, um, 
I feel like a lot of people I know, pro progressives, who um, either are blind to the ways in which they um, um, reproduce or participate in anti-black racism as anti-racist educators, mm -hmm. or when um, they do listen, they feel like implicated in the critique of their or of anti-racist, anti-black racism, and then get really defensive and start saying things like, "Well, why, why don't we ever talk about class?" or you know, something like that. And so, you know, like part of me wants to know, like, what your book, what Progressive Dystopia teaches us about anti, um, about transforming mm -hmm. anti-black racism. And then another last question I want to fit in is, what do the teachers in this book teach us about effectively serving the needs of black children? Okay, so that's not that is like four questions, Cam. Okay. I don't know if realistically, I don't know if I can. I'm going to try to name them. There's white supremacy versus anti-blackness. There is uprooting anti-blackness, and then there's what do the teachers show us about how to transform systems? Okay, start with the first one. Um, so white supremacy. Anybody slightly familiar? Yes, y'all know what it is. Okay, um, and so white supremacy is a system that not only elevates whiteness as a source of power and privilege, but also um, directly impacts all people who are not racialized as white. So white supremacy is what creates the category of people of color, and it is fatal, right? Talking about people who are, and it's also, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a category that's very flexible and mobile, right? When I was born, a lot of folks who were immigrating from South Asia, from Bangladesh, from India, might have been racialized as white, or racialized as kind of innocuously brown, <laughs> not no more, right? And so uh, white supremacy is agile and changes in such a way that Mus Islam and Muslimness now becomes racialized as somehow not white. We're not even getting to the fact that this is something that happens between you and your God and the white people and Muslims, but whatever, it's happening, right? And so one of the things that white supremacy does is it can really change itself and change the terrain in order to stabilize and reconsolidate whiteness as something that um, is of value, right? And part of how it does that is policing its boundaries. All black, all black people, brown people, anybody who shows up as not white is impacted by this. Anti-blackness is not white supremacy, right? It's actually the exact opposite. Anti-blackness is everything that doesn't seek to, uh, it's not about pushing people away from whiteness. It's about getting yourself away from blackness. So everything that people do to be like, oh, you know, um, uh, I'm descended from, you know, Taino, Mishtek. Oh, okay. People know a lot about, a lot of claims to indigeneity, a lot of claims to all these things that are not black in your heritage is one way the anti-blackness shows up. Um, it also shows up in, you know, the pressing of hair, left and right, you know what I'm saying? Everything from naming children Cameron, whatever it is. <laughs> Anything you can do to get some distance from anti-blackness. Um, <laughs> And anti-black racism directly impacts black people and people perceived as black, right? That's not something that is shared by black people and people of color, non-black people of color. And so I think part of what can happen is people can underhear this thing of you're being anti-black as, well, you don't experience racism. Those things are completely different, right? And again, anti-blackness is participated in by everyone, right? Some of the most stringent, um, perpetuators of anti-blackness are black people who know firsthand the trauma of being black and are trying in some way either to protect themselves or their children. People who keep their kids out the sun. People who pinch the, uh, the noses of, of uh, people like myself when you're young. You know what I'm saying? And so I think in our, uh, in our political work, we have to think about are we organizing against white supremacy or are we organizing against anti-blackness? And a lot of times, particularly in people of color spaces in you know, Bay Area Brown, right? Spaces can be very diverse, very diverse. Who's been in a room of all people of color and not a single black person, right? 
And so at our, so instead of calling those spaces people of color spaces, use those spaces, oh, this is a gathering for non-black people of color, mm -hmm. right? So either name that or use that as an opportunity to directly address, A, do we really want this space to be a space for black people? And sometimes you don't, and that's cool. It's okay to be like, yo, let's figure out what's going on with Latinx, Filipinx relations. Let's get into this. That's a substantive and meaningful conversation. Why aren't there black people here? Probably because your shit is whack. You know what I'm saying? The other thing is like, well, the black people aren't coming. Is there something for them to come for, right? And so I think the other piece is like, when we're mobilizing against white supremacy, we're thinking about, okay, how does this help all people of color? And this is something that Robust and Justice Academy excels at. Some of the best outcomes in the state for people of color at this school, right? Mobilizing against anti-blackness is specifically about protecting and extending black life, right? And sometimes that might mean that might change some of your other outcomes. Protecting and extending black life might mean rearranging some of these resources. You might not have them seeing them same outcomes for Latinx students, right? You might not have them same outcomes. And so, you know, thinking about like what are we organizing around? And it's okay if that's not what you're organizing around, but you better say that and know it, you know. Peter, how are we doing? One more question. Okay, is uh, we have uh. Someone has a pressing question, something that might speak to something that hasn't already been spoken to. <laughs> um, so anti-blackness is part of the system, yes. correct? Um, and I, from knowing you and hearing some of your things, you say that system is connected to capitalism. Oh, talk about it. So um, <laughs> the question I'm asking is, and because someone asked about solutions, I forgot mm -hmm. who asked about it, but. Um, do you see black liberation as a part of socialism? Mm, that's a oh, great question. Wow. I love this question to end on. Thank you, Julio. Um, so I think this, I'm going to say two things. I think you talk about anti-blackness and capitalism. And so capitalism is founded on this twin foundation of settler genocide and black enslavement, right? And so I think any solution about black liberation also has to be one about being not just in right relationship with the land, but right relationship with the, the rightful owners of the land. So black liberation and indigenous sovereignty are things that have to only be talked about together. So I just want to raise that up. Um, and in that sense, socialism isn't always really in dialogue with indigenous sovereignty. Socialism that, I, that I've learned about is not in a meaningful way, often in real... Uh, accountability for what it means to be a seller. What you feel to socialize? Is yours to socialize? And so I think part of what we need to think about is like what is like what's our real what's our long term goal? Like we were talking about with Duana in terms of like do I really want the person to graduate high school? Do I'm trying to get am I trying to get just healthcare for everybody, or am I actually trying to get to a place where my descendants can be proud of me? You know, and so so that's like kind of the big picture piece. But in terms of a step along the way, there's a lot of folks who have done black liberation work over the past 90 odd years throughout the world who have used socialism and socialist kind of strategies as ways to get on that path. So I would say most of my uh, political mentors were socialist and saw that as a tool, but not necessarily as the end goal. Like once we're socialist, we're gonna be free, right? But like, okay, if we get to that place and we have community control, and uh, distributed power and shared resources, then we can think about how to bring those resources into right relationship. Uh, there was just, just one, like, uh, okay. Yeah, I would, I would like to address that, what this gentleman was talking about before me. So how do we build a stronger community and open up the dialogue to build a very, because I personally, socialism, that's cool and all, but I believe in community. I don't believe in no government. I believe in my fellow men that they can govern themselves. But I also believe in the fact that if we don't open up dialogue about our needs, 
and talk to each other like a council. Mm -hmm. We won't no, move there. Gonna get done. I mean, I think people. I mean, I think anarcho-communism anarcho is a thing. Right, so I feel like I mean, so it seems like like an anarcho-communist kind of approach to things is what I'm hearing, like a, a like a, a something that uh, is not believing in the state but also believing in the. I mean, is that where we're going? Well, <laughs> what I'm like historically thinking about is like the two revolutions that were happening at the same time in the Bay, right? Like mm -hmm. the hippie flower mm -hmm. and the Black Panther, mm -hmm. and the Black Panthers had the principles, mm -hmm. and the hippies had the manpower. And right. we could have built a really beautiful community together if we crossed that bridge, but that oh. never happened. Okay, so I don't know that we could have built a great community together. On one hand, so there was, first of all, there were, there were real connections between the anti-war movement, which was largely white, AIM, Asian American. So people were doing a lot of cross-sector work, and a lot of the Panthers were funded through a lot of new white folks. And so I think there were connections happening. Um, I think in terms of community work, part of what the Panthers uh, were committed to was community control over resources. And that community, in terms of them, the way they were thinking about was black community control mm -hmm. over the black community's resources. And so part of what happens, particularly when being 13% uh, of a country, 6% of a state, 3% of a city, once we get in community, <laughs> my community leaves real quick. And so being in larger diverse groups, particularly for black people in California, is often not a good numbers game because you can be one or two in a room and the basic tenets of, of democracy means that the black community's needs always come last. May, you know, it's us along with Polynesian folks, Native American folks, we're always down at the bottom of the list because we don't have the numbers. And so I think part of what people may resist in terms of coming together is for what, bruh, for what? Why are we coming together in terms of what we're trying to like uh, actually protect tiny sovereign pockets of three houses, half a pro housing project that's already slated for destruction, right? There's these tiny um, places that will survive the longest and best in insular community by themselves. And so building, uh, so, so building with people who are not from that community at this moment may not actually help that community survive. It actually might just hasten their demise. Let's give it up for Professor Savannah Shange, y'all. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.